Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations, rather than books. Hello and welcome to Bookmark. This is the show that talks about books and writing with a local slant. Our featured guest on today's Bookmark is Danny Atkins talking about her novel A Sky Full of Stars. We'll also hear from Brigitte Steiger and Anna ellis Reese on Beyond Kauai, a collection of essays on what it means to be a woman in Japan today. And Jan Todd will be chatting about her new novel, Jane Austen and Shelley in the Garden. But uh, we'll give you a proper introduction, Danny. But first of all, welcome to Bookmark. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me. It's lovely to be here. Uh, lovely to have you. And uh, Jan Todd's novel, Jane Austen and Shelley in the Garden. Jane Austen there, a reminder that we have a long tradition in this country of romantic novels to which you belong. Yes, and I'm very happy to belong to that category. I know that there's some people perhaps look down their nose at slightly lighter reading matter, but I mean, I think every reading matter is valid and every book has somewhere out there a reader who is very very pleased that it's been written so i don't think there's any shame in whatever category no shame at all but there is a kind of special sniffiness that seems reserved for romantic novels that's not applied to horror novels or any or action novels It, it is very strange isn't it i have no idea why why that would be because you know There's a home for every novel and there's certainly an appetite for a lighter literature, particularly in recent times when we've been going through such awful reality. What is wrong with escaping into another world, another life? And love and romance, they're things that interest us all, that apply to us all, whereas horror and action, not necessarily. Absolutely, no, we're not all going to find an alien living at the bottom of the garden, but hopefully most of us are going to encounter love in one format or another. And Jane Austen, of course, writing well before the time of mobile phones and the internet. I'm guessing that things like mobile phones and the internet have made a a writer's job romance-wise easier in terms of contacting and finding people. Yes, definitely. Sometimes, I think, in every job, you sit, stop and wonder, how did I do this before the internet arrived, how, you know, before the technology caught up with us? And that's something you have to be aware of when you're writing books as well, because you can date the book significantly by referring too much to what's going on at the moment, you know. So you're mentioning Facebook and you're mentioning Twitter. and But if you haven't got TikTok in there, then you're probably, you know, already passé. So. What about COVID? COVID's not it's great a, for romance novels. I it's mean. a very tricky one because I've, I've seen lots of comments by other authors that, you know, do we include it? Do we not include it? Because... It's not terribly romantic to talk about the period where you're all going around with your face masks on and it's not conducive to the romance of, you know, meeting someone and where do you stop and say, have you been double jabbed? And a lot of authors have decided that we're just kind of kind of blip and pretend that that year didn't happen. You're writing escapist novels. You know, if you wanted that sharp dose of reality, then there's plenty of books that will find it very easy to incorporate what happened in real life. I think I'm going to just carry on writing in a nameless year where we didn't go through the horror that we all went through. Well, we're going to listen to your first choice of music in just a moment, but is music important to you, Danny? Yes, music is very important. I write with music playing the entire time, can't write in silence. I know a lot of people like to go off and write in a cafe. I find that distracting, you know, things happening around me, but to write in a in a vacuum and in silence would be impossible. I listen to a lot of country music. I'm making no apology for that. And the first track that I've chosen is by a country music band that perhaps not everybody would have heard of. But it's particularly significant, this track that I've chosen. 
often when you've written a book, afterwards I find a perfect song that would go with that book. And then you're sort of telling yourself, in your dream scenario, if this ever makes it into a film, this should be on the soundtrack. But this track, Bittersweet, by the Zac Brown Band, actually inspired an entire scene in this book before the book was even written. So it happened completely the other way round. The song inspired a scene, and then the book followed. It's a beautiful romantic story within a song, as so many country music songs are telling a story. And I can't hear this song now without thinking about the book which came after it, which was This Love, which was lucky enough to win an award. So it's special for all sorts of reasons. That was Bittersweet by the Zac Brown Band. First choice of music on Bookmark today from our featured guest, Danny Atkins. Danny is an award-winning novelist. Her debut novel, Fractured, published in 2013, has been translated into 17 languages and sold more than half a million copies around the world. Since then, she's had a series of bestsellers, including The Story of Us, This Love, which won the Romantic Novel of the Year Award from the Romantic Novelists Association, Our Song and A Sky Full of Stars, which came out this year. The Mail on Sunday said it was written with immediacy and compassion, and Heat magazine described it as beautifully written, a simultaneously heartbreaking and uplifting tale of love, loss and sacrifice. I enjoyed it very much too. And in fact, listeners to this show will have a chance to win a copy of it, so stay tuned. But first of all, for those who haven't read it, what's it about? Like a lot of my books, it's an emotional drama. The features of the book, if I was describing it, are about love, friendship, grief and loss and moving on, finding happiness. The book centres on the main character, Alex, and his wife, Lisa, and their little boy, Connor. And we open with them on the morning of Lisa about to go off on a train journey into London as part of her job as an astronomer. Unfortunately, something very tragic occurs and this completely devastates Alex and young Connor. And I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that um, Lisa is only in the in memory after that point in the story. But she has left a legacy behind. Lisa carried an organ donor card and we then learn about the recipients of Lisa's organs and the curious and unusual friendship and connection that builds between the various recipients and with Alex and Connor and his family. And as you say, Lisa, she's not there, but she's very present because she gave organs to four people. Four people, yes, four recipients, but I I wanted to be the four specific recipients and why they actually got the help that they did and how it affects their life going forward. And there's an issue as well about, has she given them more than just the organ? Has she given them parts of her memories? Which is a fascinating issue there. Yes, the book certainly delves down an an area which uh, some people will say is pseudoscience. It's not proven, but there are a lot of people who believe in cellular memory. The idea that the organs may carry some sort of memory or imprint of their first owner, if you like, which I found fascinating. Read up a lot about it and a lot of anecdotal accounts. Some doctors will actually believe in it. There seems to be too many facts that pop up that make it completely easy to dismiss as just wishful thinking. It's certainly an area that was easy to mine for a story. And Alex is desperately looking for Lisa and signs that she's still with him. And obviously one of the people that he looks at most closely is Molly, the recipient of his late wife's heart. 
and also Molly's feelings and being drawn towards Alex and you know is she just drawn there because of the gratitude or is there something deeper that's pulling her towards him what did you decide to write about this particular issue? I mean, all those things are fascinating. Was that what pulled you towards the issue? Yeah, I mean, it, it is fascinating in, in this particular instance, but I already touched on organ donation in a couple of my other books. It was sort of a subplot in our song and then again in A Million Dreams. So I'd done research, gone onto the NHS Blood and Transplant website, researched how feels for donor families, how it feels for recipients. While doing that, the idea was obviously percolating quietly away. I wonder if there's a connection between the recipients. You know, you talk about the connection with the donor, but, you know, if somebody has received someone's lungs, if they met the person who had the heart, would they feel a connection? You know, is it sort of almost like a coming together, a reuniting? That was sort of like bubbling away in the back of my mind when I was first thinking about this book. Happily, it all seemed to fall into place when I was writing. It was very interesting to read and something I hadn't particularly thought about from the recipient's point of view, the guilt that they might feel that they're only alive because somebody else has died. I think so. I mean, on so many accounts I read, that moment when they hear that there's an organ, be it a heart, a lung, a liver, whatever the person is waiting for, it's immense joy. And then it it quietly catches up on them. Well, My joy is some other family's tragedy. Some other person is grieving because they've lost somebody they loved. So it's a gift that you willingly take, but you wish somebody hadn't had to give it. And the point you also make, which is that it's not the end of the story. There's all sorts of things that can still go wrong. There's medication, there's maybe psychological issues about guilt, rejection. Absolutely. I think people think, you know, maybe that after a transplant, everything is just the same and you can resume your life. And in a lot of ways you can, obviously, depending on the organ, but you will be on drugs, anti-rejection medication for the rest of your life. Not every heart transplant will give you the longevity that you hope it will. People are living for 20, 30 years. I was delighted to hear that there are some people who actually have a second heart transplant when the first one eventually fails. So, And the technology, the advances in science are changing all the time. By the time that you need the transplant, you're on borrowed time. The quality of your, your life is such that you will take whatever you're given. And people seem joyous and aware that they've been given a second chance, almost like being reborn. They don't want to waste a moment of whatever new life they've got. There is a sort of slight message in the book. I don't know whether it's a message, but something that you explore about afterlife. Clearly, Lisa lives after her death, and um, Molly talks about seeing her father before the operation. She's worried that she might not make it through, that, oh, well, if she doesn't, she will see her father in whatever place she believes him to be. Was that something you were conscious of exploring? I think I just wanted to touch on the fact that I like the idea that there is a possibility of reuniting with the people that you've loved and lost in your life. And particularly in my books when I, I have been a little wicked and killed off characters that people have loved dearly. So I, I like to believe that however wicked I've been sitting at my keyboard that they'll all get a chance to, to reunite again one day. In terms of research, you spoke to people, did you, on either side of the... I didn't do I didn't do so many interviews. It was a difficult topic, obviously, and I, I would feel yeah, you know, I wouldn't want to be insensitive. Fortunately, the internet provides so many opportunities to be able to hear first hand accounts and uh, the NHS transplant website has lots of anecdotal accounts of donor families and recipients and you feel that you can actually walk in their their shoes for a little while. 
I hope I've done it justice. A couple of people have contacted me afterwards, readers, and said their family donated a lost loved one's organs and they, they're living in hope that they will hear from the people who are now living because their son or daughter or whatever died. I think it does give a great deal of comfort. I don't think many people actually meet up the way that I have in my book, but it does happen. It might be discouraged because it's a very sensitive issue, but I have seen very touching reunions on, on the internet and um, in America where it tends to happen perhaps a little bit more than it does in the UK. The instances of somebody meeting someone who has their parent or their son's heart beating in their chest. I sat in front of my computer with tears streaming down my face when somebody laid their head on the recipient's chest and heard their son's heart beating again. Wow. It's really moving, and, and that's the kind of thing that you want to capture. And it was an important book to write in 2020 because the rules in the UK were changing over organ donations, so we, we moved to an opt-out system. It's more of an assumption now that we all would be willing to donate unless we've specifically left instructions not to. But more than anything else, more than legal guidelines, it opens the door to conversations for families to have, which is sometimes a taboo subject. But just to make it clear to your loved ones what you would like to happen. And then you haven't got that awful moment when a family is thinking, well, I think that's what they wanted, but they never really said. The biggest thing, I think, to come out of a book like this is for people to then turn to their loved ones and say, actually, what would you want me to do? It's not morbid, you know. It hopefully will never happen. But if it does, then you, you've covered the basis. It's an uplifting book. It's not a morbid book. But I wanted to just briefly talk about Lisa because, well, I think we've made it clear what happens to Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> but she needs to be this incredible woman and this incredible character to generate all this love and belief that she has the strength to live on, which, which Alex believes she does. So even though she's only in the book for a short time, she has to make an impact. So where did you start with her? It was easy in the first scene, obviously, where we still see them as a, a very close family unit. But I did a couple of flashback scenes where Alex thinks back to when he and Lisa met. And she seemed so real to me in those scenes. I mean, that I could see why Alex and, and she on paper might look like they initially wouldn't work. But I could see why she and he fell in love so completely and easily. It actually made me want to think, you know, I'd, I'd love to have heard more of their story. It was great fun to write about the day that they met or the day that their son was born. And those are some of my favourite scenes, those tiny little snippets. Because Lisa is still in the house. She's still all around Alex in a thousand memories, the way it, it always is when you lose someone. Thank you, Danny. Uh, two other people who are no longer with us, Shelley and Jane Austen, but they still live on. And they're in the title of a novel, the new novel, by Janet Todd. Janet has published on memoir and biography, as well as on authors including Jane Austen, Mary Wollstonecraft, Afra Ben, Byron and members of Shelley's Circle. She's a former president of Lucy Cavendish College, Cambridge, where she inaugurated a festival of women writers and established the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. Jane Austen and Shelley in the Garden is her fourth novel. Sandy Toxvig called it dazzlingly inventive, fabulously enjoyable. I loved it, she said. Here, Jan herself explains what the novel's about. I wrote it in lockdown and I wanted to write something that was perhaps a little lighter than I'd been writing so far. At the centre of it is, is a rather 
bookish, rather eccentric woman who sort of just came into my head and I, I started to feel that she was kind of a friend or a friend I'd like to have. So I sort of gave her house room and then two others came along as well. So I really wanted to buy, write a book that celebrated friendship, friendship between women, friends who just come together. And in this case, also when they're not very young, they're bringing a lot of baggage to the relationships as well. So I wanted to investigate friendship among women who have been isolated sometimes in their lives and who are used to a lot of independence. At the same time, I wanted to write about people whose lives have been heavily influenced by books, you know, who kind of lived in the fiction they've read and found themselves remembering books as much as they're remembering their own lives. My main character, Fran, is not quite haunted by, but certainly lives with Jane Austen. Her books mean so much to her that she hears her talking to her in her head. Jane Austen will comment and say, come on, cheer up. Don't whinge. Don't do that. As I've come to live in Cambridge for longer than I expected and gain a sort of sense of place, I wanted to think about place in terms of its defining of somebody. How much is your identity where you live? I use the places that I feel I know best. Cambridge, Venice, and Mid Wales. So I've got my characters kind of wandering around in, in these places, and two of them are close to water. Again, with these sort of themes of isolation and so on, I wanted to investigate one's the human relationship with water, lakes and rivers and so on. And one of the central images of the book, which is in some ways a quest, a quest for the vision that was held by the romantic poet Percy Bysshe Shelley of unities, of, of a fellowship of like-minded people living together in a house. Um, I wanted to follow that quest to the house that Shelley had for this fellowship, which is now under the water of a reservoir in mid-Wales. And I find very poetic and very emotive that idea of a house a house where famous people have lived and talked under the water, you know, with the water and the fish and whatnot flowing through it. This is the first time that I've dared to dramatise Jane Austen herself and make her into a kind of ghost. Actually, I think she would be quite a, a, a scary person to meet in the flesh. I mean, her novels are wonderful, but if you look at the face of her, the usual portrait, she has quite a, a sardonic, even sour expression. I think she'd be quite scary, actually, to meet in the flesh. So I wanted to give her a little bit of that and make Fran be a little intimidated by her, but also, also criticise her back for being so very heterosexual in her plots, in the sense that at the end of it, most of the friendships between women, unless they are sisters, tend to be relegated. And the big romantic plot is everything. So I, I had Fran imagining a little bit of how it might have been, how some of these women who are thrown beyond the pale at the end might actually have been quite happy. So I wanted Jane Austen as somebody who could comment on my central ideas of friendship and travel and enjoyment of company. I have situations. I come into it and I think, oh, gosh, this is like walking into a certain scene in a book. Now, I do sometimes see the characters around 
the place, you know. It's very easy to see some of the more pompous Jane Austen characters, especially in Cambridge, which is very good on pomposity. And recently, in a very pleasant group, we were reading David Copperfield, a book which I really dislike. And I started to see David Copperfield <laughs> somewhere down the street or going into Sainsbury's. So it's a bit more like that, but I, I wanted more to imagine somebody whose life was not quite like mine and who had internalised Jane Austen at a much younger age. Although they're both gentry and living, you know, very privileged life, Shelley is that little bit higher up the social scale than, than Jane Austen. Jane Austen has grand relatives, but, you know, she's still vicar's daughter and the vicar has to take in pupils to make ends meet, you know, and, and so on, whereas Shelley is the grandson of a baronet and the heir to that baronetcy and is a very, very entitled young man. <laughs> I don't think for a minute they'd have liked what the other stood for. But as both from the gentry, they would have been terribly polite and they would have talked about the weather. In Jane Austen, when there's always a lull, somebody who knows how to behave, even if they're a trivial character, will remark on the rain or the wind or the sun because that is what nice English people have been taught to do. They would never have got onto politics female friendship, because the female life is so circumscribed or was until recently, those friendships mean more. They have to become more central to the story itself because the domestic life is so circumscribed. Whereas for the men, it's the bonding in the wilderness or shooting the bear or whatever. You know, they're doing something big. Whereas women, on the whole, have to focus, I'm talking about the past mainly, focusing on their emotions and their thoughts and their feelings. The sort of thing that is beautifully described by Anne Elliot in Persuasion, you know, that women's lives are confined and feelings prey on them. There, to have a confidant, a female confidant, is, is everything. Unlike Jane Austen, I don't revise over and over again, which I think I, I should do, but I should say right away that I'm a total insomniac and you've really got to do something in all those sort of extra hours. Now I think I'm writing because I just have an itch and it's habit and something I can't stop, like people who garden and paint or draw. You know, it's something you do and you can't really explain even why you do it, but you have to do it. In the past, I think I, well, I did it for the job when I was still an academic. But in me, if there's any troubles in my life, I write more. I use it as a, a sort of therapy. I'm writing about other people. I'm thinking about their lives and I'm putting it down on paper, whether it's a biography or a novel. Certainly in the past, when things have gone poorly in some way in relationships or in the workplace, then I write more <laughs> because I find it a, a very good way to get it out. You don't have to publish it all, but you can hone it and use bits of it. In the past, I put a lot of my feelings into, into Mary Wollstonecraft. Any other person is really unknown. And I, the more I wrote biographies, the more I thought, you can never be true in a biography. <laughs> you know, you the consciousness of another is not known. So I think I did put some of my own feelings into assuming how Mary Wollstonecraft would feel. Happily, I have never felt that with Jane Austen. I don't think she is at all knowable. And I haven't in any way ever tried to get inside her. She is such an amazing genius, but she's also as a person, and we can only know her through her letters, not somebody that one would quite understand, I think from a modern perspective. I am fascinated by the way mo some modern novelists are 
writing about themselves, writing about the craft of writing, about how do you tell a story and how do you tell your memories and how much do you edit every time you tell them? How much can words ever capture that mess that's in your head with all the different thoughts and so on? I'm quite fascinated by creating somebody who's trying to write a biography and finds it impossible to do it, (laughs) stymied all the time by her, and it will have to be her, have to write about women, about her own life. And I thought of doing it to somebody who is quite different, a male landscape artist from the 18th century, whose work I've come to admire very much. That's what I thought I would perhaps have a go at, but it's all terribly tentative, and the doing is all. And this is one of the joys, I have to say, of retirement, when it's always going to be hurt by reviews and upset if anybody doesn't like something you write, but it doesn't, you know in your heart it doesn't matter anymore, you know. You're not going to lose your job if they don't like it. And in the end, you can now, at a certain age, write to please yourself. So I think I'll, I'll carry on doing that. And Jane Austen and Shelley in the Garden by Janet Todd is published by Fenton Press. We're talking on Bookmark today to Danny Atkins about her novel, A Sky Full of Stars. Jen there saying it's quite hard for her sometimes to leave behind her characters. She sees them all around. I wonder how hard when you go so deeply into characters as you do and really live crucial moments in their lives, how hard it is for you to leave your characters behind. It is incredibly hard because I don't write particularly quickly. I normally sort of probably allow about a year for a book from start to finish. So these people have lived in my head for a very long time. It's almost like you take in lodgers in your house. <laughs> you don't leave them the moment the keyboard gets switched off at the end of the day. You know, I'll, I'll end up talking with them to my husband or on my phone to my kids. Um, you know, what, what do you think they would do here? And, and they've become so real. And I think they have to, because if they're not real to you, then you're never going to make them real to a reader. So if you've become really attached to them, then uh, when you finally finish, it is sad. I cry every time I finish a book. Oh, really? Maybe that's relief. (laughs) It could be relief. But some of it is that you're not going to meet these people again. And that's very sad. I can see why people like to have a cast of characters and do a series of books, because you're never completely saying goodbye. I have just written a short novella, the only time I've ever done a sequel to any of my books. And it was so lovely to go back and meet them all again. I was almost asking them, like, what have you been up to since we last met? And two of the central characters in this novel, we've got Alex, who's Lisa's husband, and Molly, who's one of the beneficiaries of uh, Lisa's organs. Alex tells this story in third person and Molly tells hers in first person. Why did you choose them to tell the story and why in that way? I think very much it was always going to be the partner left behind. So Alex's story was always going to be half of the book and Molly was the one I was connecting with the most. I wanted to explore that connection with having been the recipient of Lisa's heart, whether there was residual feelings within that organ. Is it just a pump, the way the doctors will tell you it is? Or is there something more? Is there emotion tied up in that particular organ? Would she feel a draw towards Alex and to Connor, the little boy? And obviously she does. I leave it for the reader to actually work out whether that is something scientific or whether that's just Lisa was a warm, loving person and Molly's a warm, loving person, so they've got natural bonds there anyway. It was interesting to do their voices. I did first person for Molly because I find it quite 
easy to write in the first person. Most of my books have been written that way, but I didn't want to do that with Alex. I wanted to explore his as third person. It was the first time I'd I'd written from a, a man's point of view, and I, I was a little concerned before I began because I thought, I don't know how easy it's going to be to walk in his shoes and whether I, I would be able to get his authentic voice. Conversely, it turned out to be the easier sections of the book to write. They flowed better than the Molly's That's interesting. Did. Yeah. I wonder why that is. I have no idea. It was a gift. I never question a gift. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. And as you said right at the beginning, it's also about grief, about Alex's grief and about Connor's grief. Did you research that? I did. I researched a little. I mean, I think we can all empathise and realise how devastating it would be for a young child to lose his mum or to put ourselves in the place of losing your partner. I didn't interview anybody, but... Um, I did look at how grief counsellors deal with children and and learn how grief manifests with children, which isn't necessarily always in the same way as it does with adults. And uh, Connor has it in his head that his mum hasn't really gone and that she's definitely coming back for him, which was heartbreaking to write. Well, let's hear your second choice of music now, which is Someone Like You by Adele. Why this one? Well, apart from the fact I love Adele and her emotions in the songs are absolutely undeniable. This is one of those cases where the song existed and I wrote a book and then afterwards realised, oh gosh, this really matches the book I've written. That was one of my earlier books called While I Was Sleeping. Adele's song perfectly captures the emotion of finding yourself aware that the person that you love has moved on, they're with someone else and they're living your happy ever after. I can't hear this song without thinking of that book and I played it a lot when I was writing some of the key scenes. I heard that you settled down that you found a girl in your Bookmark with Lee Chambers on Cambridge 105 Radio. With Heifer's Bookshop, the great Cambridge bookseller since 1876. Our aspirations wrapped up in books. And our featured guest on Bookmark today is Danny Atkins talking about her novel, A Sky Full of Stars. Danny, we've touched on this before, that the novel, as well as being a romance, it does cover these big issues as well about instinct versus reason, science versus emotion. When you start out to write, you think, yes, oh, well, I'll pull all this in. Or as you're writing, you think, oh, do you know what? Actually, I'm addressing these things, which wasn't what I intended. I think it's probably more the latter case. I don't plan and plot necessarily throughout the book. I will know where we're starting and I will know where we're ending Sometimes, you know, the book will take a, a complete detour along the middle. You might read your synopsis that you'd written and submitted to your publisher at the very beginning of the process and then look at your finished book and they look like two completely different novels. For me, I need to have that freedom to see where the book is going to take us. I normally only know one scene, one chapter ahead, what's going to happen. There are certain points in the novel that you know you have to hit. And you will naturally perhaps find other topics that creep in. And if they feel natural and if it feels like you're not forcing it, then you go through it. That's what editing's about. You can take them out afterwards if it doesn't work. Do you have a reader in mind when you're writing? No. And I'm always surprised by the the vast difference in um, feedback I'm getting from readers. I have a lot of people who I would say are reading up or down. 
a lot of elderly readers. I also get a lot of teenage readers, which was perhaps a more of a surprise. I think it would actually constrain me too much if I was thinking, I have to write this because that's what this you know demographic is expecting to read or hear. I just tell the story. And I hope if I've done it right, it's going to have a universal appeal. I'm probably more surprised when I get so many male readers because I'm probably not writing a book with a male audience in mind. But having said that, there's been some lovely feedback from male readers, um, particularly ones from Brazil. So really? I have, I have a lot of <laughs> feedback. Big from, in Brazil. I'm very big in Brazil, yes. I'm very happy to say that. <laughs> and what about the female characters? They're very alive, they're very real, they're very independent, they're forthright and they're was a time when female characters in romances were a bit insipid. Are we long past that? I hope we're long past that. Nobody wants to read a poor doormat romance. And, you know, as wonderful as Cinderella is as a fairy tale, I think in reality now we'd want her to get out and go to the ball herself, not wait for somebody to take her there. (laughs) So, yes, I think I prefer a degree of feistiness because I think that that's just real life. We are masters of our own destiny to a degree, Although I suppose that's contrary to what I've written in a lot of my books where fate really does step in. But I don't think there's any one decider. It's a combination of uh, where you want to go and how you're prepared to get there. And then, you know, dealing with whatever curveballs fate throws in your path along the way. And I'm guessing as well it's important for you because uh, your readers are living these lives and they don't want to feel that they're reading about a woman they can't identify with. Absolutely. I mean, the best compliment that I think anybody has ever paid me is that these characters felt so real that they would recognise them if they were walking down the street towards them. Oh, isn't that lovely? That's perfect. I can't ask for anything more than that. Well, let's stay on that theme of femininity and women and hear now from the contributors to Beyond Kauai, studying Japanese femininities at Cambridge. It's a collection of essays from Cambridge University students exploring the diversity and complexity of being a Japanese woman in the new millennium. I spoke to one of the editors, Dr Brigitte Steiger, along with a contributor, Anna ellis Reese, and I started by asking Dr Steiger to explain the meaning of the title, Beyond Kauai. Kawaii means cute normally, and it's now already in the Oxford Dictionary and other English dictionaries since about 2010. The Foreign Ministry of Japan has introduced Kawaii ambassadors to the world, showing that uh, Japan has this cute, fluffy, feminine side. But the term is actually older, and it was uh, originally coming from the term Kawaiushi, which means quite demure, passive, childlike. Uh, cute as well. And it was a kind of a counterculture in the 19, from the 1970s of young girls who tried to have a different kind of feminine culture. So getting away from these uh, women who sacrificed themselves and taking responsibility, trying to stay childlike for longer. And it's become a term which is quite well known, especially among young people from anime, manga. It's the kind of current image of Japanese women. So They're no longer this geisha image, which we knew in the early 20th century. But of course, Japanese women are much more than kawaii. So in our book, we show that uh, Japanese women's lives are very diverse. One of the tendencies and trends in the last 20, 30, 40 years is that fewer women want to get married. Or maybe they want to get married sometimes, but refuse to get married very soon because they don't want to have all their responsibilities and sacrifices, especially connected with marriage. On the other hand, if you don't get married, you're not considered adult. So there is this conflict uh, 
in Japanese society. You are allowed to experiment with different kinds of communities, different kinds of gender roles. But once you want to be adult, then you have to get married, then you have to have a job. So if you become a mother, you're no longer kawaii. Anna, tell me about your chapter and, and why it was a subject that you wanted to address. My chapter is all about the chubby female body. It's essentially a comparative analysis of Japan's dieting industry, but also its more recent body positivity movement. So two very different areas, but essentially I look at how both in kind of intentionally negative depictions of the larger female body and in intentionally positive depictions of the larger female body, there are these parallels in how it's presented and the emphasis that is placed on weight, on aesthetic appeal, on performing femininity, and also most importantly, a divide between women of different sizes and a competitiveness between women. How I came about researching this topic, well, I I've always been very interested in Japan's dieting culture, even before I lived there during my year abroad. I'd always been told that Japan has this really, really healthy diet and that everyone in Japan is really slim. So I had this very fixed impression and it is noticeable how there are fewer overweight people in Japan compared to countries like the UK. But actually there is a lot of quote unquote unhealthy food. There's a lot of fast food. There's a lot of fried food everywhere you go. What was actually more noticeable for me was the pressure for women in particular to lose weight and to be slim. My experiences shopping in Kyoto, where I lived, were quite challenging. I'm five foot ten, so I found that very difficult, particularly because there are many supposedly one size fits all clothes, one size fits all trousers and dresses and skirts, which you know obviously creates this idea that there is a normal weight. So that really struck me, and it made me want to look further into this pressure. So when I came back to Cambridge, that's what I started doing. I had a look at dieting commercials in particular for weight loss supplements. That's where I started. And then somehow the YouTube algorithm took me to a really interesting part of the internet, which was Japan's body positivity movement, specifically a pop idol girl group called Chubbiness, who are actually one amongst several of these so-called plus size groups who are supposed to be representatives for larger women and who spread these positive messages about self-acceptance and love of food. The more I dug into those videos and the body positivity movement, the more parallels I saw between that and the dieting commercials that I've been looking at. And so that's where the chapter was born. Yes, the body positivity movement and the girl band sound fantastic. If only the story ended there, there's still this undercurrent and this pressure that women are facing. It sounds quite blatant, actually, the way you describe it. Exactly. There were just certain themes that really came across quite strongly in both. For example, in the more negative depictions of larger women, there was a very obvious dichotomy between slim and fat, good and bad, quite misogynistic binary. That's quite apparent in the body positivity movement as well. But on the flip side, thinner women are demonized and presented in this really negative light. And there's this idea of anyone who wants to die and lose weight is a bit of an idiot, really. And is it different to the UK? I mean, somebody listening to this might think, well, we we have all this in the UK. You know, the average woman is a size 14. They find it hard to get something to fit them. There's all this pressure on billboards and in the media to be slim. How is it any different? I do think the body positivity movement is a lot more prominent in the UK. I think in Japan, it's, it's just beginning. What I've noticed in the UK is that in some corners of the body positivity movement, it's quite similar. And that there's this idea of while you might be overweight, there is still this pressure to put a lot of effort into your appearance. So even if you're not regulating your body, you are wearing a lot of makeup, you are being quite feminine. 
in that traditional sense. And that's something that I noticed in the Japanese body positivity movement, but bringing in this idea of cuteness and, and kawaii. So the group chubbiness are specifically quite young girls. They're in their teens and 20s. They're not really presented as overweight in this grotesque sense. It's very much classed as squishy and cute. And it's part of the kawaii aesthetic, which is all about being pink and, and girly and fluffy and, and squidgy. So even though kawaii is very much a mainstream trend in Japan compared to the UK, there is that kind of parallel, I suppose, where you are still expected to be part of some kind of mainstream trend. Is there something about if you're overweight or, or chubby or infantilized somehow, that's okay as long as you're this age, as long as you're a teenage girl, but not for an older woman? Yes, exactly. And the idea of being adult and overweight is touched upon in quite a lot of the dieting commercials that I analyze. So in one example, set during a university reunion where a woman who was once slim is now overweight and her behavior is still very much the same and she's quite unsophisticated compared to her slim peers. And so it really presents this idea that it's no longer okay. You have to kind of grow up, but you can't grow out. Is there anything the two cultures can learn from one another? Is there something that the UK can learn from Japan and vice versa? They both have quite a long way to go in terms of making this body positivity movement actually something that is genuinely progressive. I do think we are seeing more plus size models and plus size influencers in the mainstream in the UK compared to Japan. Having said that, I don't think that the UK is all that different. There is still a lot of pressure for plus size women to adhere to other social norms and to kind of make up their femininity in another sense by kind of exploring this idea of kawaii and the fact that it's, it's only okay to be chubby in Japan if you're young. That kind of reflects some of the sim- some pressures that we also have in the UK, but just in a completely different sense. Brigitte, Beyond Kawaii, it's called. So is this what you're hoping this book will achieve, that it will make people think beyond the traditional images of Japanese women? Yes, exactly. That's a a very important point here. It's not only that Japan is unique, but if you look to any culture from outside, it's sometimes easier to actually find the structures that make us uh, work. And it is very important that we understand that Japan is not all, everyone is kawaii and everyone is the same. We do try to show the diversity. And this is the third book in a series of uh, chapters by our students. There are issues in Japan that are only accessible to our students because they are much younger. So they find out very interesting aspects of Japanese society. The book and other books have inspired younger students as well. So A-level students for their own projects, for instance. So they find a way how they can actually approach and understand Japanese society. And Beyond Kawai, Studying Japanese Femininities at Cambridge is published by Lit Verlag. We've been talking on Bookmark today to Danny Atkins about her novel A Sky Full of Stars, which is published by Head of Zeus. Danny, you thank your characters at the end of the book, which I, I really liked, as well as the donor families who help the NHS. There's quite a list there, but it's it's a lovely, warm, touching list. Yes, acknowledgements are kind of hard because you suddenly sit down and, and realise you want to name everybody that's ever been nice to you along your, along this journey. Journey. But the characters, it's, I've not named them before in, in the acknowledgements, but they really did feel so real to me that I think they deserved their place and was honoured to be able to also salute the donor families who are heroes. Agreed, true heroes. And if you're listening to this and think, oh, do you know what, this sounds great. Well, not only are you right, but you've got a chance to win, two of you have got a chance to win a signed copy of A Sky Full of Stars. The question... Yes, the question... 
Can you tell me what profession Molly has in A Sky Full of Stars? And she's the recipient of Lisa's Heart. What's Molly's job? And if you find that out and uh, you want to enter the competition, email your answer to daytime at cambridge105.co.uk and mark it for bookmark. So daytime at cambridge105.co.uk, mark it for bookmark. So Danny, what's next for you? I have a book that will be coming out next year that's just in the final editorial stage called Six Days. Different from the ones that have gone before, it tells the story of a young protagonist who is on her wedding day. She turns up at the church only to find the love of her life hasn't turned up. Family, friends are very shocked. They think she's been jilted, but she is convinced that he would never do this to her. The novel is said over a short time frame, six days, as the uh, the title gives away, where she is determined to find out what has actually happened. And a uh, question we ask all our guests on Bookmark, what are you reading at the moment? OK, I'm reading a book by Sophie Cousins, which I'm really enjoying. It's a lighter romantic comedy. It's making me laugh. This is I Just Haven't Met You Yet. It is, is, sorry, it is called I Just Haven't Met You Yet by Sophie Cousins. It's one of those books where you can't wait to go to bed, so you you get back to where you left it the night before. Oh, I like those kind of books. Yes, so that's that's really good. Well, thank you, Danny. We'll come back to you in a moment for your last choice of music, but a heads up that our next show is a sort of non-fiction special, really. Our featured guest will be Lynn Bryan talking about her memoir, Iron Man. We'll also hear from Hilary Cooper and Simon Streeter about their book, After the Virus. And Talia Miron Schatz will be chatting about her book, Your Life Depends on It, What You Can Do to Make Better Choices About Your Health. But we'll sign out now with your last choice of music. I just haven't met you yet, which was the title of the Sophie Cousins book. Also, the title of a song by Michael Bublé, but you've, cho- you've chosen another Michael Bublé track to finish with, Feeling Good. This is a very personal choice. My late mother was a huge Michael Bublé fan. She used to think that she was the first person in the UK who liked Michael Bublé. (laughs) Having seen him on his very first appearance on Parkinson, goodness only knows how many years ago, raved about him. And like most families, yeah, okay, I'm sure he's fine. We refused to actually embrace the Michael Bublé (laughs) love that she had. Poor (laughs) mum. I know. We bought her cassettes, never actually bothering to listen and then were very slow to realise, oh, Actually, mum might be right. He is actually rather good. She never got to see him in concert. And two years after she died, I went to the O2 to see him in concert with my son and my daughter. And we went for grandma. Birds flying high. You know how I feel. Sun in the sky. You know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by You know how I feel It's a new dawn It's a new day It's a new life For me And I'm feeling Good.